So uh, today we're going to be continuing this series, An Open Letter. And this is a, a study through the book of Galatians. Galatians is one of the New Testament letters to one of the earliest churches there in the Middle Eastern kind of Mediterranean area. Paul, one of the original disciples, one of the 12 apostles that was tasked by Jesus to really plant churches all throughout the world, was sending this letter because there was some divides that were happening. There were some problems that were happening in one of these early churches. And when we, as we dive into this for a minute, we're gonna realize that some of this like religious superiority and these divides between the religiously superior and the religiously inferior, that divide was growing greater and greater. When you think about all the denominations and all the debates and all the differences that we have here in American Christianity, there's a lot of parallels that I think we're going to see that it's time for us to be, be free from these divisions, be free from all these debates, be free from all these things that divide us. Because when you think about it, Jesus, the cross of Christ, the grace, the mercy, the second chances that he gives us should be something that binds us together and makes us stronger. So one of the themes all throughout the book of Galatians is freedom, freedom from certain issues that seem to be plaguing that early church. And I think this issue of division is something that plagues the American church as well. Who's ever dealt with somebody that has a superiority con uh, complex? Maybe it's a boss who thinks he's better than you. Maybe it's like getting online and social media, seeing all these debates. What I wanted to do is just kind of set the tone for you know transparency and full disclosure. I definitely struggle with a superiority complex when it comes to, uh, just burnt myself a little bit, when it comes to uh, coffee. Now, your guest services team does an amazing job brewing coffee out there in the lobby, and it's really fun to come to church with free coffee every day. But uh, this has progressed beyond just like a hobby for me, and I bring like my own brewing system everywhere I go to brew these beans that I paid way too much money for. So in my red container, I've got these uh, beans that are from Papua New Guinea, they're really good. And then I've also got in the blue container some beans. And I grind these myself. You know, I, I've got this grinder at home. It's not just a blade that like crunches everything up. It's a burr grinder. So there's like a specific granulation. And just because I use the word granulation, you're already judging me. And I know it. I told you, this is therapy for me. I'm trying to like work through this superiority complex. I'm kind of, I'm kind of preferring this. So during these first few minutes of the message, I'm going to make what I believe is the perfect cup of coffee. And I won't drink the whole thing throughout the course of the message. I just drank one last service, so I'm a little bit amped right now. So if you don't believe me, you can come afterward, meet me in the lobby and try this cup of coffee because most of the time when I make these cups of coffee for people, they don't know what they've been missing because most of the time people are settling for uh, no judgment here. I'm saying this not from a place of condescension, but most people have to settle for a Keurig. Hey, it's great. It's convenient. I get it. Some days I've got to do a Keurig myself, but one of my rituals is to make coffee that you would have to get in like a hipster coffee shop. And I know hipsters are just one massive superiority complex. And I don't really lump myself in with that demographic, but uh, I get it. You ever go to like one of those craft coffee shops and there's that man bun barista up there that's dressed like a lumberjack, but probably never used a chainsaw in his life. I get it. I get it. It can be a little bit intimidating, but what I've got here is an AeroPress brewing system. It's kind of like, if you've ever been somewhere that has a French press, it's kind of like an upside down French press. So I'm just kind of, you know, saturating my grounds here. What happens is I create a little vacuum in a minute and I get like the perfect amount of extraction. So there we go. The cap is on. 
in here you have a very high concentrated cup of black coffee. In a minute, when it all kind of settles in, I'm gonna turn it upside down, gonna plunge it through, and then I'm gonna add some hot water to where it, it uh, kind of matches my taste. And I guarantee you, every time I make a cup of like this for somebody, they're one of those people, one of those people, I sound so judgy here. Look, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm pro coffee. I want you to enjoy coffee the way you want to enjoy coffee, but I just think you might be robbing yourself some of the nuances of coffee when you add all that creamer and all that Starbucks syrup and all that sugar. You know, I'm, I'm not a connoisseur or anything, but you know, maybe some of you are. I know we're really close to some like Georgia wineries up north, but hey, that's none of my business if that's your cup of tea. Don't say cup of tea, it's church, right? So I'm almost done with the perfect cup of black coffee. And what always happens is when I give someone a taste, they're always so pleasantly surprised because they think, well, you know, black coffee from like granddaddy's house was always just from like a, you know, old school like percolator with some Folgers. Again, nothing wrong with that, but this is brewed to where it's perfect extraction. None of the grounds are like overdone. There's no burnt taste. Matter of fact, this, uh, this right here has a little bit of a blueberry note. And you think just because you use the word note in coffee, you're like, who does this guy think he is? I don't think I'm better than you. I just think my coffee might be a little better than, than your coffee. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. So if you want to you wanna try some sips of that, I'm, I'm germ-free. I've got through all the sicknesses that are going around America right now. Matter of fact, my family and I got it while we were vacationing in Disney World just a few weeks ago. Like, it started with my son had a stomach virus, then me, then my wife. My parents came along, my dad got it, then my mom got it, then we got back, my wife's mom got it. So I'm immune to all illnesses right now at this point. So you can have a sip and you won't get any germs and you'll have the quintessential perfect cup of coffee. Now I get it, I can feel the tension here because you're like, I know the way I like my coffee and you're setting your ways, no problem. But I'm just kind of de demonstrating to you the tension that happens when you're dealing with somebody who thinks that their ways are better than your ways. And there's nothing wrong with taking pride in your work. Like maybe you've been a victim of this online when you've posted a picture of a toddler or a newborn, like it's called parent shaming, where people think their way to parent is the only way to parent and they can't compliment their way of parenting without trashing your way. It's like an epidemic, lots of people are going to counseling because they post a picture of their baby sleeping and of 10 or, 10 or 12 other moms are like, how dare you, you let your, your baby sleep on their belly? Do you even love your child? Well, then you post a picture of your baby sleeping on their back and it's the whole other crew of moms that are criticizing that. And God forbid you're one of those moms that uses a bottle and formula. People are judging you for using formula because you should be nursing that kid. Oh, man, the struggle is real. My wife, we have a uh, five-month-old and a two-month-old, and we've been through the ringer with the opinions of moms and dads who think they're better than us. Superiority complexes are no joke. Now, there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do, your job, your hobbies, your family. I think where pride can really become problematic is when it infiltrates your religion. And that what was happening in, in this modern day kind of church setting. We see here with all these denominations and all these divisions and all, oh, I like a contemporary style of worship. Well, I like this worship team. Well, I like, I like more of a liturgical priestly service. Nothing is wrong with any of these, but when you start elevating your way and condemning other ways, we start looking like this church 
that Paul had to write this letter to and use some pretty strong language about the religious superiority that's happening. You see, there's two audiences in this book of Galatians because in this early church, you had some non-Jewish believers, which anytime you see the word Gentile in the New Testament, it's referring to someone who's not a Jew. And then you had Jewish believers who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, except these Jewish believers were trying to tell all the non-Jewish believers that in order to please God as a Christian, you've got to obey hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament laws that were given by Moses, not just the Ten Commandments, hundreds of other ceremonial laws. And so what's happening is you got these Jews who are used to living this way of life where you're you know, trying to live up to this perfect standard and offering these ritualistic sacrifices and you're trying to like live this perfect life and then you've got these Gentiles, these non-Jews who really don't have that kind of a religious upbringing. So you've got a superiority conflict where the people who feel like they know the Bible are holding it over the people who don't know the Bible and it's creating this divide, it's creating this gap. You can almost imagine that they're in the temple, they're in this whatever kind of synagogue they're meeting in It was a segregated Sunday where people who thought they had it together sat on one side of the room and the people who were insecure and didn't have all the right Sunday school answers and didn't really know how to dress for church showed up. And Paul is writing this letter to confront the divisions in the church. So if you have your Bible, we're gonna start in Galatians chapter three today. Today's talk is about freedom from religion and freedom from division. While you're trying to find that scripture, I want to share with you something that somebody a lot smarter than me said. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Jesus is God's attempt to reach man. What we're going to see over these next few verses is that when we come together as a family of God, regardless of our religious pedigree, regardless of our Sunday school attendance, regardless of how many mission trips we've gone on, regardless of how many Bible verses you can quote, regardless of how many mistakes we have, different labels we have, different baggages that we have, different scars that we bear, in the family of God, we have more in common than we think. It all starts right here in Galatians 3, verse 26. It says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now hold it right there. A lot of people use verses like this to try to discredit Christianity as an archaic way of thinking because it uses that masculine word, sons of God. So obviously, because it wasn't gender inclusive, you are a religion that oppresses women. If someone tries to use that argument on you, just know they're demonstrating their ignorance of several things. Their ignorance of the Greek language and their ignorance of the illustration that Paul was trying to make. Because if you would have understood the way that this sentence is being structured in the original language it was written in, which was Greek, you would understand that this word son doesn't really have anything to do with being a boy child of a father. The word son has more to do with bearing the likeness of a father. So even though my little girl is my daughter, she bears likeness of me. Hopefully she bears more likeness of her mom because her mom's pretty and I'm just an ugly dude. But you get it, bears the likeness of the father. And then you could take it a step further. Back in these days, women were treated as second-class citizens. They were just told to like, take care of the home and cook some food and take care of the kids. And so what would happen is when you would have a son, like if you had a son, even if he wasn't the firstborn son, like say you had a daughter first and then you had a son, that second born child would be treated like the firstborn. He would have a double share in the father's inheritance. He would basically be the leader of all the siblings and what 
Paul is trying to say here is that when you receive Jesus, when you place your faith in him, you have that same status as a firstborn son, regardless of your background, regardless of your mistake, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your socioeconomic class. In Christ Jesus, we are all the preferential child. You're his favorite kid because when we say yes to Jesus, when we name him our leader, our forgiver, our Lord, the Bible says that Jesus wraps his righteousness around us. What that means is he takes his relationship status with God, being in a right standing, being found okay with God. He takes that status, clothes us inside of it so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. So if you know Jesus, you have the same status in the Father's eyes that Jesus does. It has nothing to do with age, with gender, with race, with class. That has all to do with the only status that matters, being a child of God. So that's just one little verse that Paul's trying to label the playing field. He builds an even bigger case in verse 27. For as many of you... Uh, as, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he's building this case that as a child of God, as a son or a daughter of God, as one who has experienced a new beginning, the Bible uses the word new creation. We become a new creation when we trust Jesus. He begins to speak of this status that we now have with a perfect and holy God who can't let imperfection into his kingdom of heaven on the other side of death. So he sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins because if there's anything that humans have in common, it is our mistakes. As you scan the room, you realize there's not a perfect person. I don't stand before you as a, as a perfect pastor. I stand before you as somebody who's committed the most significant sins in my life as a Christian. So what he's saying here is this status that you receive as a son and daughter of God is not based on your good works. When God looks at you as a son or a daughter, it's not based on how well you have behaved. It's not based on your church attendance. It's not based on which church you went to, how many mission trips you've gone on, how much scripture you can quote. It's not based on your moral high ground. If it was, then that means it's up to us to please God. That means if we could earn the saving grace that he gives us through Jesus, then surely if we can be good enough to earn it, we can be bad enough to let it slip through our fingers. So if you keep on going with this domino effect, if that is the reality, if I can be good enough to earn a good status with God, I can be bad enough to lose a good status with God. So what that implies is that the cross only forgives the sins that I commit when I'm on my best behavior. And there's no limitation on the forgiveness that comes from the cross. That's why it's a gift 
that's freely given, that can't be taken away, that we just receive. And the Bible says, Jesus says, those who know my father, I hold them in my hand and my father holds mine in his and none can pluck them out. None means no one, no thing, no mistake. We can't be good enough to get it. We can't be good enough to maintain it. We can't be bad enough to lose it. But religion teaches the opposite. If you do these things, God will be pleased with you. So it means that we've got to somehow work off our salvation. And that's what was happening here in this church of Galatian. You had these morally probably superior people. They were probably living the good boy, good girl, Sunday school kind of lifestyle. They probably didn't have a lot of dirt in the closet morally, but where their problems were was their elite thinking. They thought because of their religion, because of their morality, that they had achieved some higher status with God. And that's the problem with religion. Children of religion achieve status, but children of God receive status. You see, when it comes to your walk with God, your relationship with God, knowing Jesus as your father, as your Lord, as your leader, as your forgiver, it's not something that you earn. It's not something that you accomplish. There's not a to-do list that comes to us in order to receive Jesus. He takes us as we are, and we simply, like a child on Christmas morning, get a gift, and we get to tear into it and experience the goodness of being found in Christ. But he doesn't stop there. (laughs) He begins to go beyond just the status of relationship and how there really is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God and the family of God. He begins now to talk about what unity looks like. Have you ever met somebody that you just felt like, oh man, I've just got such a great connection with this person. We like the same things. We get the same taste in music. We both like black coffee. Like there's nothing that can expedite a friendship with this guy than loving a good cup of black coffee. Like if I find out that you're into all these fun brewing systems, we're gonna have a long conversation. It's gonna get very, very nerdy. We're gonna geek out over coffee and we might become best friends. I'll invite you over and we'll, we'll have a competition to see who can brew the best cup of coffee. You know what it's like. When I was in college, there was a TV show that was really popular, but also it created a lot of debates because some people didn't like it, some people loved it. I was a huge fan of that show Lost. Remember Lost? Like that was an epic TV show. And as soon as you found somebody who knew as big a fan as you were, you immediately start having conversations. Hey, where does that smoke monster come from? Like you have this bond that you didn't know existed beforehand. Maybe it's over like your favorite new Netflix TV show. But when you find somebody, you have this moment where you're like, we just clicked. We just clicked. Maybe you realize you're like, you know, maybe you're a Georgia Tech fan and then there's a lot of Georgia fans around and you see someone with the GT and you're like, oh yeah, there's my homie. I gotta get with that person. We know each other. We know what it's like to be kind of on the minority here in Georgia. Hey, I don't have a dog in that fight. I'm from Florida. I'm a Florida State fan. So uh, I don't really care which team you like. Honestly, I like the food at football games more than even the football itself. So give me a burger and some wings. I'm in a happy spot. But check this out. He says that, if you've been baptized into Christ, that you put on Christ, as if it was as easy as suiting up in this like wardrobe material. Like this is my Christ jacket. This is my Jesus shirt. No, he's not talking about Christian t-shirts with funny puns. He's talking about what happens 
When you name Jesus your Lord and your Savior, something, something happens on the inside that we get to demonstrate on the outside. So see this wedding ring here? This wedding ring is a symbol of my commitment to my wife. When I take my wedding ring off to maybe like, you know, get in the shower or something, which I don't, I never really do that. That's a bad example. What's, what's the last thing I took my wedding ring off for? Um, I had this, one time I had, this is, this is so stupid. I had this really goopy uh, uh, hand, like, like hair product, and I didn't really like the way it like stuck to my ring. So I took it off and I put the hair product on and then I put my ring back on. Now, in those moments where I was doing my hair, did I lose my status as a husband? No. This is just a symbol on the outside of the commitment I've made in my heart and my mind that I'm devoted and I'm loyal to my wife. That's what happens when Christians get baptized. It's a secondary event to becoming a Christian. Baptism doesn't save you. This ring doesn't make me married. It's just a symbol of my commitment. The reason we dunk people all the way underneath the water is to kind of symbolize the fact that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. The old you, the sinful you, is disappearing and the new you, the new creation, the new identity you have in Christ is coming into existence. So what he's saying is, if you've made that commitment, if you've trusted Christ, then you actually put on Christ. It's like you're wearing a jersey. The reason you wear a jersey is to signal something to two different groups of people. You signal to the people you're on a team with that you share a common goal. And then you're signaling to the opposition and the bystanders that these are your people. Imagine, now, this is not me. I'm not um, a warrior. I'm not a soldier. Matter of fact, this is from the student ministry leader here at the Dawson campus, Chris Scott. This is his uh, part of his army uniform. Now, it's got patches on it. He's the airborne. So imagine they're walking through like the commissary or they're walking through the, the, the base here and they see the airborne. It might automatically identifies a connection with people. But it all started with this uniform. Because regardless of the color of someone's skin inside this uniform, regardless if they've got a New Jersey accent or a North Georgia accent, regardless if they come from a rich family or a poor family, they would take a bullet for each other. This uniform is all that matters to them. Yeah, there's cool patches that say there's different things. It's kind of like, this says I'm a Christian. This patch says, well, I serve in kids ministry. But we're all on the same team working for the same goal. When you put on this uniform, you know who you would die for. You know who you're supposed to be loyal to. You know whose back you're supposed to have. The bond that we're supposed to have as Christ followers goes deeper than even the blood relations that you have with your mother, your father, your son, your daughter. The devotion, the loyalty that we're supposed to have as the family of God, because we have put on Christ, because we identify with each other more as Christ followers than we identify in the labels and the stereotypes that the world tries to label us and limit us to. We can find people that are there for us that show up at the hospital for death, show up at the hospital for a birth, that walk us through the times of suffering, that are there in the middle of the night if you need them, that love with, with no strings attached. Because there's something that's supposed to happen to these social boundaries, these cultural divisions 
that they place on us, because we look different, because we have different opinions, we tend to magnify our differences. But here's what's supposed to happen in the family of God. Our differences begin to diminish in Jesus. We're no longer labeled by our differences. We're no longer labeled by our past mistakes and struggles. We are labeled as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, all sharing the same status and the same inheritance of our Heavenly Father. Our differences diminish in Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 28, he says, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no male, there's no female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That word all one has an interesting connotation. It doesn't mean that we all of a sudden start thinking the same we all start sharing the same opinion. We all start doing the same thing. No, it just means we've got so much in common. It means we've got so much that makes us alike. And even though we have different parts to play, it's kind of like an orchestra. If every instrument, the violin, the trumpet, the trombone, the tuba, if everyone was playing the same one note, that would be a very boring song. But when a great orchestra comes together and has an amazing conductor, he brings out all of these different parts. And while they may be playing different parts, the harmonies that they make, different parts, same song. We are one body with many members. That's why the Bible goes throughout the New Testament over and over again and calls us the body of Christ. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are eyes, all equally important. But here's the problem. For some reason, there's this gravitational pull when it comes to religion. And Paul says it like this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This has been true since the great divide in the church of Galatia all the way now to the divisions that we have within all the different expressions of the Christian church. We're supposed to be singing the same song. Different parts, same song. We're supposed to be fighting the same battle, but we tend to fight each other so much over styles of worship, over attire for Sundays. This idea of division is nothing that's new. It's plagued Christianity for years, and I think this is one of the greatest attacks that the powers of darkness have against us, the church. Because if the enemy can get us distracted, getting mad and frustrated with each other over things that don't even matter, then that means we don't have the time or the energy to turn our hearts outward to the people who need the love of God in their life. So we get to choose today what kind of people we want to be, what type of Christians we want to be. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Do we just want to become intellectually sound Christians that know a lot of doctrine, but are still totally ineffective with showing God's love to the community? I will say this, before we can show what the love of God looks like to outsiders, which is the last thing Jesus told us to do, like Savannah shared, before he floated back up to heaven, if we can't love one another 
with an all-out devotion and stop arguing over stupid things. We've defeated ourselves before we ever leave this place on Sunday mornings. We've got to have each other's back. We've got to lead the charge for unity. America is begging for it. We get caught up in debates that will not send someone to heaven. If we're gonna expend our energy on fighting, let us fight against the powers of hell. Jesus said that he is going to build his church. He's promised that the church is going to win. He is going to build his kingdom. He is going to draw people to him but he's only gonna be doing it through people who are willing to stop taking our own opinions and our own preferences so seriously and start saying it's not about me. Here's the litmus test. Here's the the DNA test to know if we really love the way Jesus does. You've seen Jerry Springer where everyone's trying to hope that they don't get the DNA results. They are that father that wants to keep on partying. No, we have a father that is begging that the DNA test shows that we are his. He wants to be in a relationship with you, but he doesn't want it to stop there. He wants us to love the way we've been loved. So if you wanna know if you're really a son or a daughter, if you wanna know if your life has really been changed, if you wanna know the status of your relationship with Jesus, well, it's as simple as this, knowing that love for Jesus is demonstrated by love for people. And it's not just people that look like you and think like you and talk like you and act like you and like the same things that you do. Love for Jesus is demonstrated by love for people. The Bible says we're supposed to pray for those who curse us, bless those who hurt us. The Bible says to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and that's the second most important commandment outside of loving God with everything you've got. So if I'm supposed to love my neighbor the way I love myself, wouldn't I do anything to make sure that my two kids and my wife are provided for? Am I gonna do whatever it takes to make sure that they've got a full stomach before they go to bed? Why would I love anybody else less? I'm tired of being the type of Christian that's loving receiving the grace of God but letting it stop with me. If we're recipients of grace, we are called to be distributors of grace. It's not supposed to stop here. We're supposed to love one another the way Jesus loves us. And if we can get that right, then what starts to happen is the people in your life, on your teams, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, They start looking at the way these Christians are acting toward one another and forgiving one another and not gossiping, not getting the last word in, not getting engaged in meaningless debates. And they think, man, I need that in my life. I'll have what he's having. We're supposed to be almost confusing to the world with the way we love each other because it's so counter culture. That's a good thing. Our love for God demonstrated by our love for one another. So where I want to leave you is almost this, this, this compilation, this brief manifesto of verses all throughout the New Testament that challenge us to have each other's back, that shows us what freedom from division, freedom from religion looks like, that show us how to be devoted to one another. 
First Corinthians chapter one, verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now that doesn't mean that we all of a sudden have to be so agreeable that we're dishonest with one another. Matter of fact, conflict is the result of honesty. You don't engage in a conflict with somebody that you don't feel comfortable being honest with. It's okay to have conflict. It's not the absence of conflict that makes us unified. It's how we work through it together. It's how we come together despite of our differences. So being of one mind, united in thought and purpose, has nothing to do with our preferences and our styles of worship and our dress code and all these external things. What it means is we decide that one thing matters, knowing God and making him known. First Peter, it says, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted, and keep a humble attitude. The word sympathize, such a lost art today. I think about it. When you're on social media, you get this kind of urge to write a snarky Facebook comment. It's not because you want to know what other people think. It's because you want other people to know what you think. How many of you have been in a conversation with somebody where you know this person's asking you questions just so they can one-up whatever you say? They're not really even listening to your answer. They've started a question just so they can try to put you in your place. That's not supposed to be us. We've lost the art of being good listeners. Let us be people who rejoice with those who are rejoicing, who weep with those who are weeping. We need to learn that lost art of sympathizing and being good listeners. Ephesians 4 says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Make every effort, not just when it's easy, not just on the weekends, not just when you're small group Bible study, not just when you're in here in church. Make every effort to keep yourselves united. And then finally, Jesus on the night before he was crucified, knowing what's about to take place, knowing that one of his friends is about to betray him, knowing that an angry mob is about to come steal him away, beat him, crucify him, he is still investing in his people to the very last minute. And he says this at the Last Supper. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. It's not the arguments that we win. It's not our ability to change people's minds. Matter of fact, that's not our job. Our job is not to change someone's mind about Christianity. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We're called to be witnesses. We're simply just to say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's working really great for me. I hope it could work for you too. If you got questions, I'm here for you. Our love for one another is what demonstrates our love for God. Jesus said that they will know who you belong to. They will know your Jesus people if you've got Jesus love for one another. So what kind of a church are we gonna be? What kind of home are you gonna have? What type, what type of team are you gonna lead at work? It's so easy to become cynical and start making assumptions about people's motives. So easy to try to win an argument. You know, I heard a smarter person than me say that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Let the way we love give us permission 
to speak into people's lives the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Devotion, loyalty, unity. That's how we find freedom from religion and freedom from division. Let me pray for you guys. God, thank you for these kind of convicting truths in your word. Things that really challenge us and cause us to confront if we're loving each other the way you loved us. Second chances, third chances, fourth, fifth chances, God. We love receiving your mercy, but Lord, it's so hard to give it sometimes. And I pray before we try to change the world that we allow you to change us. Let it start here. We up the game. We refresh not only our commitment to you, Lord, but we refresh our commitment to each other. Let the community of Dawson look on with awe and wonder at the way this family loves one another. Not in an exclusive, high society kind of way, Lord, but with an open arms, open door policy that anybody's welcome here and anything's possible here because of the way you have loved and changed us. Make us unified, make us devoted, and help us to believe the best about each other and the future of what's to come. So here we pray. Amen.